All right, good evening, everybody. It's a, a great privilege to be joined here, or for me to be joining Rabbi Benjamin Elton here at the Great Synagogue Library. It's fantastic to be here in the heart of Jewish Sydney. Uh, Rabbi Elton, as everyone knows, is the Chief Minister here at the Great Synagogue, uh, and we are going to be dealing with an incredibly important and sensitive subject this evening, that being the inclusion of the LGBT plus community within the Orthodox framework. So those who didn't join us last week, just to understand that we are espousing Rabbi Elton, myself, and all the other speakers in the course are espousing a form of Judaism that positions itself very much within the modern world. That on the one hand, we are trying to embrace the values and the various aspects of modernity that are conducive and consistent with Jewish values, but holding hard and fast to our traditions and to halacha in every sense of the word. So perhaps just by way of introduction, Rabbi Elton, please welcome. It's wonderful to be with you this evening and to all our guests that are joining us. But maybe Maybe just a, a definition from your own, so because I think we all define modern orthodoxy slightly differently. Maybe you can give us a bit of your definition and then we'll launch into the subject this evening. Uh, certainly. Well, it's very nice to be part of this conversation. Nice to welcome you to the Great Synagogue again. Um, as it happens, I try and avoid the term modern orthodoxy. And the late Rabbi Sachs said, why make yourself a minority of a minority of a minority? So there's, there's few enough Jews on the planet, and an orthodox Jews are a minority of that, and modern orthodox Jews are a minority of the, of the orthodox. Um, so I just um, try to live an authentic Jewish life and teach authentic Torah, um, uh, which I think has always had to be in dialogue with the realities of, of life around it. Um, so I'm trying to teach or, or live a relevant, um, a resonant uh, orthodoxy. And if uh, people want to call that modern orthodoxy, then that's fine by me. Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to push you a little bit on that particularly because it was. Um, I was once host, hosted a particular Rosh Shiva, who was a Haredi individual, uh, what, what I would call a Haredi individual. And I said to him, explain the, your, your Yeshiva or your Haredi. He says, my philosophy is the philosophy of Torah, <laughs> which is more or less what you just said, you know, <laughs> that I'm living an authentically Jewish life. But uh, I imagine the people in Maya Sharim believe the same thing, as do people on you know, other spectrums. So in what way would you consider your lack of better term, brand of Judaism, mm. uh, difference. Well, I mean, you have your PhD, so I should have said the right doctor, Benjamin Elton, mm. which I think would be fair to say is unusual within uh, definitely the Australian Orthodox context, not not so much so in other parts of the world, but uh, I think that already makes you a little bit, uh, not a, God forbid, a pariah, but a, an anomaly within the uh, Orthodox world. Well, what's interesting, actually, just on that point, is the two other rabbis in Sydney, I think, with PhDs are Rabbi Slavin, and Rabbi Solomon of Moriah, mm. and they're both Chabad and would not mm. consider themselves um, a modern Orthodox as a, as a, as a label. I, I'm a great believer in the in pluralism within Orthodoxy, um, and uh, that there are many uh, different uh, equally valid approaches within Orthodoxy, and it really comes down to what resonates for you, whether it's uh, Hasidic or neo-Hasidic, uh, whether it's um, uh, drawing on Sephardic traditions or Ashkenazi traditions, um, whether it's more rational or more mystical, um, these are, or, or you know, from a, a sort of German Hirschian perspective, or more um, a religious Zionist perspective, Rab Cook um, or Rab Lichtenstein, um, these are all equally valid um, uh, positions. And and honestly, I just we're all the result of our experiences and our backgrounds, and the teachers we had, and the 
and the ideas we were exposed to, we, we searched out and found. And I think I'm a sort of um, uh, consistent, I think, and a, a, a synthesis of, of the ideas that I've that have attracted me. Uh, and many of those be called what we call modern, um, and these are sort of modern or thought approach. You know, um, looking to increase the role of women within Hamachal, an openness to secular studies, uh, which is often called uh, modern orthodox. But um, but it's not for me to compare myself to the Rambam. But the Rambam was also had a position which other people opposed. His was more open to surrounding ideas; others were, were more closed. But I wouldn't define the Rambam as this or the Rambam as that. Okay. So for those who didn't hear my opinion last week, I'll just um, where I don't think we would disagree. Um, for me, the the concept of modernity. So I'm I'm not ashamed to call myself modern orthodox because I suppose the way that I define modern orthodoxy would be very much the idea that um, non-Torah sources have incredible wisdom that not only are value in and of themselves, but have value in how they can allow us to appreciate the Torah in a greater manner. And so I don't look at the university as a threat and I don't look at it as a necessary evil. I see that there's an enormous amount of positivity to be brought out of secular study, secular literature. And so that's about Okay, but to the topic of that. So um, the LGBT community has come a long way in, uh, in Australia in particular, but in the world, in the, the Western world in general. And that being said, the Orthodox community is definitely um, not seen as a natural home for those who identify as part of the LGBT community. Um, one thing I think it's important to note is that even those of us that are not part of any community, we often lump people together. And so even the LGBT community, I think it's unfair to say it is a community per se. I think there, there are lots of different individuals who live uh, different kinds of lives even within those communities. So if we talk about the gay community, there's no uh, singular definition of what a gay individual or a gay community looks like. But that being said, I think the Orthodox is not seen as a natural home. In fact, I think it is generally seen as quite antagonistic um, by design because there are verses in the Torah which explicitly prohibit uh, male and male sexual activity. And that is automatically, whether correctly or incorrectly, translated as there is no place in the Orthodox world for somebody who does not conform to a normal heterosexual lifestyle. So, let me, I'd like to hear your response and how you see the challenges. So actually, I disagree. Okay. Um, and I think the, the proof of the pudding is in the eating, that um, there are many synagogues, probably almost all Orthodox synagogues in Sydney, and a very large number around the world, where individuals who consider themselves uh, gay um, do find a, an Orthodox shul which is their, their best fit, which is their natural home, and they're happy there. And uh, there's a difference between between a community and a shul, and um, and uh, black and white law. Um, and if they were to to talk about their relationship with that text, that might be an uncomfortable um, encounter for them. I mean, very understandably. But the community need not be an uncomfortable place. And I think if you look at individuals who are part of our communities they obviously don't find it an uncomfortable place and it's the way that we as the rabbis and we as the leaders of the community lay and religious the way we uh, interact with people and deport ourselves 
that determines whether our communities are a comfortable and natural fit for those people um, or not. It, it doesn't come down to the verses, it comes down to, to us and the people in our shoes. And I think to just to add to that, I think that we would all fall into the category of being able to uh, accept all individuals. I think our, our, we would be very mistaken if we felt that people had to conform 100% to a halakhic lifestyle to be accepted within Orthodox community. No one fits the fits that particular bill. And therefore, we are open to have everybody almost, uh, you'd have to be a card-carrying atheist to be denied an aliyah in a, in a shul. Uh, I think other than that, we don't ask people um, questions of their levels of observance when given aliyahs. And if a person wants to be part of the community and they consider themselves Jewish, we don't even ask them for halakhic proof if they're Jewish. If a person rocks up to shul and it's a male over 13, we assume that they are part of the million. So we don't ask them for credentials. And similarly, when it comes to uh, getting kibbutzim, various honors in the shul, we, we don't ask questions. And not only do we not ask questions, we accept the fact that um, we will embrace everybody. And that idea of accepting people whoever they are, whatever their lifestyle is, that is something that uh, I would like to think that every shul in Sydney has embraced. That being said, there's certain points where it's almost this, uh, I don't want to call it the elephant in the room, but there's certain conversations where it's hard not to get uncomfortable. Um, the question is, how often those conversations take place? Um, I don't think I've ever had a conversation where I felt uncomfortable. I've had honest conversations, um, and I'm very grateful for the honesty that people brought to those conversations. Um, but the conversations I've had, there's been an awareness on part of everybody in the conversation of, of what's possible in an orthodox framework and what isn't possible. And that, I think, takes the discomfort out of it, uh, because uh, no one's trying to embarrass anybody else or press anybody else beyond their their position of, uh, of, of conscious, you know, where their conscience is comfortable. Um, uh, but, uh, and if that's not happening, if no one is, is trying to either say gotcha or trying to uh, trip somebody up or trap somebody or embarrass them, then, then you can have very frank and open and honest conversations and loving conversations, uh, even if the conclusion is um, we all know sitting around this table having this conversation that, that certain things aren't possible or aren't possible yet. Um, but, uh, and I think those sorts of difficult conversations very in, or very frank conversations are important between a rabbi and, and any congregant. Um, and it could be on a whole variety of issues. Um, but, uh, and, and I think part of the rabbi's job is not to be uncomfortable, is to be able to accept whatever people come and tell them um, and, and and speak to people and meet people where they are, uh, and 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 provide whatever help that, that rabbi can. So I agree wholeheartedly with you, and and I think that you know in in say in a pastoral role, if a if a same sex couple were to come to me to seek marital guidance, I would treat them as I would treat any couple coming to seek marital guidance. There would be no agenda on my part that you know this is an issue. It, it wouldn't have that. That being said, is that we have this sort of point where um, the equality that we want to grant our members to say that every member of an Orthodox synagogue is welcome and agreed, there's all going to be certain lines. So, so by way of um, example, so a number of years ago, and um, it was a first night Rosh Hashanah, I, I gave Drosheh and Shul, where I talked about acceptance in the community. 
I, I don't recall, it was quite a number of years ago, I don't recall exactly what prompted it, but I, I made explicit reference that we need to make people, we need to make homosexual people feel very much welcome and part and equal parts of our community. And I believe that wholeheartedly. But a few days later, I had, uh, you know, someone asking, Rabbi, can I please come speak to you? And it was a lady who came with her partner and she said, we, we're not members of your synagogue, but we heard about the drosha that you gave. We would be honored if you would work with, if you would perform our marriage. Mm. So that is where I talk to the discomfort, mm. the discomfort where we get to a point of saying, listen, you guys are welcome to be coming to my shul and, and, I, and you're every much part of the community. But then there's always the but. And that's, I suppose, the discomfort that within the Orthodox world, and and I think this is where I'll still use the term the modern Orthodox struggle, because we want to accommodate as much as possible. So if you're on the on the extreme right, so telling people no is easy. You know, you can't do that. You can't if you don't keep Shabbat, you can't get If you don't keep halakha, you can't do. It. We we very it's very easy for those who are on the extremists to say everything's out, and for those on the progressive left everything goes, you know, so whatever you want is pretty much, you know, we, we can make an accommodation. Mm. But for those of us who are sort of sandwiched in the middle, we've got the situation where we want to be liked, for lack of a better We want to be, you know, I don't want to say popular, but we want to be, be loving and caring. But there are certain lines that it's impossible to not cross, but it's impossible to cross for us. And we run the risk that someone says, well, if you won't marry us, I'd rather go to a synagogue where I am 100% equal membership. Mm-hmm. And, and that I think it is a difficult, I think that is a bit of an elephant that it's hard to, to address. So I think I'd say two things. First of all, that uh, uh, this question of saying no uh, does come up um, in, in different areas. For example, let's say somebody came to you and they said, um, we're having a circumcision for our child and we're having a non-Jewish surgeon performing the circumcision and we want you to come along and make the blessing. So you'd have to say no. And you would you 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 might love the family and you would love the family, and you might even have married the parents of this child, and you're desperate for that child to have a, a Brit Mila. Um, and you might um, urge them go to go to this Jewish person, go to that Jewish person, go to this mall, go to that mall, um, and they say no, no, we're very happy with our search, we would like you to come along. So you have to say no, and anybody who feels themselves to be to be um, halakhically bound is going to say no in certain situations, in certain cases. And you just have to hope that uh, your relationship with the people you say no to survives. And I think if, it's, if you say no in a loving way, not because you want to hurt anybody, but because you, you uh, feel um, obligated in halakha, you feel that halakha is binding upon you, um, then you just hope they take that's in the spirit that you intend it and um and if they don't uh them to the brakes uh that's the first point the second point is every jew today is a jew by choice not just converse and every synagogue member is certainly a synagogue member by choice and everyone must go where they feel most uh, most at home um and do your best to make as many people as possible feel at home in your in your shul. But I'll give you a very interesting case, actually, that um, somebody uh, was coming to my shul, and to my great um, sadness, actually, it, it, it pained me, although I don't blame him, 
but at, at a certain point he felt he wanted to be in a more religious environment. That if you come to my shul, most people are not Shema Shabbat, most people are not strictly observant of Kashrut, and he was um, increasing in his level of observance, and he wanted to be in a place where basically everybody, or almost everybody, was as observant as he wished to be. And I said to him, but, but, but join and become part of a, of a core of people who come to the great synagogue, who are fully observant and are modeling that and are encouraging others at the similar level of observance or interested in that. So he said, no, no, I think I really need to be in an environment where that is the norm and not the exception. I don't want to be um, a, 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 an exception, a, um, uh, a, a usual in my observance. I want my son to be standard in the place I dabble. So he went to a place where that was true, and, and that's a shame. Shame for me, and possibly a shame for him as well. But um, it's his choice, and he's, he's autonomous, and everyone's autonomous. So um, I heard um, uh, a very interesting speaker, Sharon Berger, Sharon Joffrey Berger speaks several years ago, and she said people have to um, go, you know, vote with their feet and follow their consciences. And her argument was, as a reformed Jew, you know, people who are egalitarian should just go to a, 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 a reformed synagogue because that's where uh, it's, it's egalitarian. And it's more complicated than that because a community or a shul is, is a sum of its parts. Its policies on women, its policies on uh, on, uh, on LGBT, it's the style of the service. It's a whole conglomerate. You can't narrow it down to one issue, which is basically right. People should find the place where they feel most at home, most comfortable, and that's where they should be. Um, and and you just have to respect people's right to uh, to do that. No one shul is going to be the right place for everybody. Uh, and if you try and make it that, then you'll just become a sort of a, like a, a smashed mosaic of an institution. But um, you can work to make it as inclusive and therefore as attractive uh, to as many as possible. Mm. Yeah. So let, let's try, you know, flush out a few. Um, you know, case studies of different issues that may come up and how we address them. Um, one is membership. So mm -hmm. um, membership, every uh, different synagogues are operated. I can talk about my own synagogue that we have a what is called a family membership. Now, the family membership is usually made of, of, of uh, a husband and a wife and all children under a particular age. So how does one address when a uh, same sex couple wants to join up as a family membership? Now, just so we can appreciate that there are going to be two broad issues that are dealt with in, in Jewish law, and this is, I suppose, in all areas of Jewish law. You've got the strict law, and then you've got sort of, we can call it the spirit or the, the atmosphere of the culture, the traditional elements that are associated with it. So by way of Shabbat, so on Shabbat, can you, uh, can you put your TV on a time switch the same way as you put your air conditioner on your hot plate? So the answer is technically yes, but there's a, an essence of Shabbat you're trying to keep. So if on the one hand we're saying that as Orthodox rabbis, we cannot perform a same-sex marriage, and that is that is beyond our ability. So can we recognize a same-sex couple as a couple and a same-sex family as a family? And that creates a, and it's not talking about the, the, the fees per se, that we can work around, but the structure mm. that if two men or two women want to come and join the community, can we recognize them as a family? And, and just to, uh, to move on from that, if said family now wants to celebrate their, you know, every other family commemorates their, their anniversaries with the Kiddush, so this couple also wants to commemorate their anniversary. Can we allow those? We're not, I think this is now, we're not in halachic zone. 
there's no halachas about who can and cannot sponsor a kiddush and who can or cannot be a member of a synagogue. It really comes down to the point is, is this negative, is this messaging consistent with orthodoxy? Was it not consistent? And and it's, it's uh, I'm, I'm, and I'll just be, uh, to just to be um, frank and open with the audience, these are a lot of the struggles that I personally have because yeah. it, it, it's, I, it's, I'm not, I'm not on the right that I can just say, listen, it's the, you know, it's finished. It, it's something I struggle with and I don't have a good answer. For it, so. so I agree with you. I think it's very important that we acknowledge that this is a painful topic for us because we don't want to do anything which excludes anybody. And we might even be dissatisfied with the conclusion we come to. And there's a certain holiness in, in satisfaction that it's a yearning um, to um, uh, show more love or to, uh, in practical ways, not just feeling it, but you know, the way Jews show love is by doing things, not by feeling things. So when there's a shortfall in that, um, then then there should be a pain. It should be painful. Um, it's very interesting. I, uh, it's not entirely an irrelevant analogy. Um, when you're single and you're and you're travelling, so where do you put your tefillin? If you put them in your check luggage. They could end up in Venezuela and you're in, you know, Tokyo. This is a bad thing. So what you do, you carry it in your backpack, you know, in your hand luggage. But if you're a single person, you want to go to the bathroom. So are you going to leave your hand luggage just sitting in the departure lounge where somebody is probably going to blow it up? Or do you take your hand luggage with your filling in into the bathroom? So when I was a single guy, this was a, a real issue for me. So I asked a rabbi this question. And he said, well, because, you know, the tefillin are in their little boxes, which are then in a velvet bag, which are then in a plastic bag, which are then in your hand luggage. In fact, you can take them in because there's enough degrees of separation that it's not a lucky problem. I said, yes, but it feels bad. He said, yes, good, good. It should feel bad. Like there's value in it feeling bad. You should be sensitive, so sensitive to your tefillin and their dignity. It should feel bad. So I think there's value and holiness in feeling bad. I think you do a lot structurally to avoid these issues. For example, we don't have family membership, which is a, we, no, there's not been family membership in the entire history of the shul. So it's very um, helpful in this regard. Each person's a member in their own right. Uh, parents and children, each in their own right. So that solves the problem of who's included in family membership. Um, I think there's a difference between, between the, the, the same sex marriage and everything else the family does. So I think when uh, a same sex couple adopts a child, and they're both the parents, so they must both be celebrated because they are both the parents of the child. When uh, and when that child is born by mitzvah, when that child is married and brachukla, everyone's there, everyone's acknowledged because they are, in every sense, the parents, both parents of that child. And and how could you possibly exclude one of them? So you know, I think uh, in terms of that aspect of family life, no distinction needs to be made. I think when it came to a wedding anniversary, um, I think you say anybody in the shul. It's very welcome to sponsor a kiddush, and if uh, if Jack and Jim want to sponsor a kiddush, they can sponsor a kiddush. I think I probably wouldn't um, say it should be uh, to celebrate their fourth wedding anniversary, but you know Jack and Jim can sponsor a kiddush, uh, and uh, and everyone can go, and hopefully Jack and Jim are well integrated, uh, you know, friendly and beloved members of the congregation. And when they make, make a kid, if you want to come because they love Jack and Jim. So you don't, in an orthodox context, you don't draw attention to the precise cause of that kiddish, but I think the kiddish itself is not a problem. But aren't you just deflecting there? At the end of the day, 
if the a, 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 if a heterosexual couple were to be sponsoring a kiddish, at the end of the announcement, to be thanking Mr. and Mrs. What we are sponsoring on honor of their 50th anniversary, and also thanks Jack and Jim for sponsoring the it's, it's to a certain degree, it's discriminatory without explicit, it seems to be obvious. And if I was, you know, in, in the same sex relationship, so listen, it's discrimination happening over here. Yeah, there's, there's a, there will definitely be a difference. And that's what should be painful to us. Um, but I don't think there's a way around it at this stage. Um, I think, by the way, there's there's people above my pay grade who can and are doing important halakhic work. And I don't think that halakhic work has been done yet, has been completed yet. So I think people who are being quite radical in practice are jumping the gun in a very serious way. But there are serious real scholars of world renown who can and are doing this work. And I'd like to see what they come up with. And maybe we can move forward, move forward on um, some of these issues. Um, uh, Matt, do, do you want to give examples? Just because I think there are, uh, I'll, I'll start one example. And I think this has been a big shift in the Orthodox world, and I'd say not only in the, the more liberal ends of the more Orthodox world, but even in, in a large part of the more conservative world, and that is the idea that uh, of uh, reparative therapy. And I think that the vast majority of the Orthodox world has given that up. There's no question that it still exists within the extremes, but, uh, but that the vast majority of the Orthodox world accepts people for who they are. We do not look to change people, we do not look to to repair people in any sense of the word. And I think that is a big shift within the Orthodox world. Uh, Rabbi Rappaport, uh, his, um, his first name is Chaim Rappaport, from, uh, who is probably, I don't, I don't want to say the world authority, but definitely the, the man who many go to for advice. And I think that, and talking back to the point where you talked about feeling the pain, that there used to be a position within the Orthodox world that the Orthodox rabbi would sit a distance from whoever was on the other side of the of the, and look down upon them of, you know, you have a problem that you need to deal with. And I would like to think that nowadays the modern rabbi sits with the congregant arm in arm, mm. saddened by the fact that this individual is isolated, lonely, or not feeling his part. And rather than say, I'm not going to hide behind halacha to say that that exonerates me from feeling any sense of pain and empathy. But rather, I have that obligation that whereas my hands are halakhically tied, um, that doesn't exonerate me from feeling compassion and, and sincerity to the difficulty and, and struggles that, that people that suffer with. Yeah, and so I think I make two points. One is I, uh, to, to um, qualify or correct in some sense what I said, um, which is, you know, we feel pain that we can't be as accommodating as, as we would like. Our pain is not comparable to the pain of people who um, who are not living the life that um, their families, their communities want them to live, that maybe they wanted to live at a certain stage. You know, people have been through a lot more pain than we have, and our pain really is is um, very much secondary to theirs. And we have to honour that. Um, the 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 next point is that we have to not treat people like pots and pans, like a fleshic spoon that falls in a milky pot is a problem. It's an objective problem and we can all, and, we can, and we're trained as rabbis to think about this teaspoon. Ah, when was it last used and how hot was this? And 
and uh, and, uh, and so on and so forth. Who dropped it? And why did they drop it? Um, we're trained to objectify, uh, and uh, it's it's uh, very damaging to human relationships. And I think it's also a sort of an ethical offence to treat people like we treat objects or animals. Um, and uh, and that's a sort of rabbinic temptation, not through any ill will. It's just the way the rabbinic mind is trained, and we have to be sort of very careful to steer away from that, not to objectify the problem. But uh, uh, you know, obviously, reparative therapy, uh, I think, has been so thoroughly dis discredited in the last few years. Um, it's it's now taken as read in, in most parts of orthodoxy. This is a not only a unproductive but dangerous uh, uh, approach, uh, and damaging and horrible. But let me be sort of more blunt and, 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 and forthcoming. You know, do I want my gay friends to find companionship and love? I absolutely do. I absolutely do. I don't want my gay friends to live lives alone, bereft of, of the comfort and companionship and love that, that I'm able to enjoy. Uh, it would be horrific if I, if I took that view. Um, and so actually, I want them to partner. I want them to find partners. Now, what they do with those partners is a different topic entirely. But in my more radical moments, um, and you know, Solomon Schechter, somebody says to Solomon Schechter once, you know, Dr. Schechter, I don't always agree with you. He said, I don't always agree with myself. So I'd always agree with myself, but, but there's an element in which I would say, um, uh, why, why can't we celebrate just the partnership? Why can't we just celebrate the fact that Jack and Jim have found each other and love each other and are looking after each other through life? And, and we don't even have to think about what else they do. We don't think about anyone else does, particularly. But, um, and it's not sort of, it's not somebody's once said to me, you know, oh, that's just like um, uh, self-delusion or, um, you know, uh, um, viable deniability. I don't think it's that at all. I think you can say, I'm just, you know, one way in which you maybe could have a kiddush for somebody's fifth anniversary of their same-sex marriage. And I'm not sure, I say I agree with myself yet, but it's just say, I'm just celebrating the fact that this couple found each other and they're caring for each other through life. And that's all that, that interests and concerns me. I'd come. Now that's it. I want to think about this. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about this. And that may be a place you could go, but then also you have to carry your communities with you. And um, you have to not, not, not split communities and not outrage communities, not scandalize communities. And that's true with all sorts of measures that rabbis try and introduce. Every rabbi comes into his community and hopefully has over his time in the community all these whiz-bang ideas uh, about what he's going to do to the service, to this, to that. And then you find actually you everyone always agrees with the rabbi. Terrible shock, but uh, I believe it happens. It, it, I'm, I'm told. In Tom, in Tom, the, uh, the uh, yeah. Um, so I, I think that you, you draw a point which you, you keep coming back to, which I think is is crucial, and that is the the, the human element. That it's for so long, and and no doubt in in a generation's time, we're going to look back on the rabbinate of today, of feeling how insensitive we were to certain positions and the inability for people to be able to see the humanity of those with whom we disagree. And I think that is a, a challenge for everyone. And, and, and But the rabbinate in particular, that if someone is coming to you with the, the, the deep longing for, for companionship, and that is something which I've 
you know, dealt with on a number of occasions and no doubt yet as well. The, the deep will and, you know, hope that the person can find a, a relationship, a nurturing, loving relationship, because it, I think it would be futile for me to think, I hope, you know, they find the, a girl who turns them right or a no. guy. It's, it, it's not even that, I think it would be unethical to, to think in that manner, because it, it again puts them into a perspective as if this is something that people choose. And we need to move beyond that, even though as in the more liberal still think there's a bit of, you know, hope behind the back that maybe one day something will change. But to be able to accept people for whom they are and to be able to embrace them for whom they are and to to celebrate. So if, a, if, a, if a, someone comes to me and says, I'm getting married to my partner, to be able to embrace the, the, the simcha that the genuine simcha that that is. But even though understanding that that's not necessarily consistent talacha. So a different example, but similar. So when when a grandparent calls me that his son has married out and he's just had his first grandchild, so it's a feeling that I have that I acknowledge the fact that something you know, there's a lot of simcha happening. You've got a grandchild that is had a lot of simcha. The grandchild's not Jewish, so it, it it might not be a celebration for the community, but I can't say well it's not Jewish, so therefore nothing to talk about over here. Why are you happy? It's, it's his grandchild. So I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to use with all our mashalim, all our different examples to somehow draw that these are exactly the same. But I do think there's an element that being able to have the this this uh, ambivalence of of great happiness on the one hand, but understanding on the hand, even though maybe it's not uh, conducive with the uh, the prototypical Jewish experience. That being said, is there's a place for it, and I think that's the important part. There is a place. Is there a place in orthodoxy for people who are not uh, compliant with the with the prototypical Jewish. And the answer has to be, I think, has to be yes. There is a place, and there's a place that Hashem wants as well. Yes, the the the, the working on the basis of this notion of thing is orthodoxy. Hmm. Working on the basis that what, what what's orthodoxy for we who are orthodox? It just it's just Judaism. Um, uh, we regard orthodoxy as embracing all authentic varieties of Judaism. Orthodoxy is the name that those outside orthodoxy give it, and we've adopted for ourselves. And therefore, how can it be that anybody doesn't have a place in, in orthodoxy? Because this is this is Judaism, this is a Jewish community, and every Jew belongs here. So it, it goes without saying that every individual belongs inside the orthodox Jewish community, and um, uh, and that's 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 the starting place. I mean, just just touching on on this question of um, of marriage and heterosexual marriage, I would very seriously counsel somebody who believed they was gay, they were gay against marrying some of the opposite gender. If they came to me and said, um, "I've decided to marry for practical reasons," then I'd definitely tell them, um, "You know, you, you must do this." Even if you, even if they've told the partner, you know, does the partner who might be infatuated with, with that with that person, uh, you know? I want to. I want to see them. I want to see a counselor. You know, I really don't want that marriage going ahead. If they think that although they are basically gay, they're attracted to this person of the opposite gender, then I want to see that very carefully thought through and investigated, and also with a probably with a couples therapist to make sure it could well be. It could well be. Funny things happen in life, but um, uh, but I'd be very very nervous about it, and really would want to either discourage it entirely or really. Um, ask them to think incredibly carefully about it. Yeah. Okay. 
So let's move to a slightly uh, different topic, and that was um, a couple of years ago, a few years ago, we had the question of the uh, same-sex postal vote. And a lot of pressure was put on the um, Orthodox community from both sides. So the, um, the more progressive arm of, of the community was saying that we as Orthodox rabbis should, uh, should be saying, we should be telling our congregants to vote yes. And the more conservative elements within the rabbinate were telling we should be telling our congregants that they should vote no. Mm. So how did you address that at the time? As I recall, I um, I go to the Chofetz Chaim. The Chofetz Chaim was asked in the 1905 uh, elections for the for the Duma in Russia. He said he was asked who should we vote for to be good for the Jews, and he said don't vote for who will be good for the Jews. Vote for who will be good for Russia, because when you're voting in Russian elections, you must vote for the sake of Russia. That's the context. And I said that people should vote for what they think is good for Australian society. And if they think it's good to have same-sex marriage, they should vote that way. And I think it's good not, they should vote the other way. But I don't think actually the civil marriage is a religious issue. That's why it's called civil marriage. And um, but one thing I am very nervous about is Jews denying civil rights to other minority groups, not just practically, but also ethically. We said, we read in the parasha uh, yesterday, you know, um, don't oppress the stranger because you know what it's like to be a stranger. Don't deny civil rights to minorities because you know what it's like to be a minority denied of civil rights. I think there was a, the, the conservative part, you know, group within the Orthodox community felt that, that if we legitimized um, same-sex marriage, it was as if we were as a society were saying that you know, Judaism is okay with this. Um, despite the fact that there's a deep separation between church and state in Australia, it seems that certain people within the community feel that there isn't one or that there shouldn't be one. I mean, our approach or my approach, which was, um, I think, not too dissimilar to yours, but it was dealing with the question of, uh, does is, is civil marriage a halakhic question? So, it's a, so I felt it wasn't a halakhic question. And the reason I felt that it wasn't a halakhic question is because if somebody marries somebody who they're halakhically prohibited from marrying, so a Kohen marries a, a divorcee or a Jew marries a Gentile, these things are halakhically not acceptable, but nevertheless, they are, they are granted all the civil rights of every other married couple. And we would not lobby to make those marriages illegal. Correct. We would accept them, and we have always accepted them. So we would never say, so that if, if there's a couple in a committed relationship, they should you know, be granted the same civil rights as every other couple, regardless. It's not a religious question. I mean, my, my um, I suppose my rabbin in the way they were taught was that the rabbi never has a political opinion from the, from the pulpit. So I recall in, uh, in 2005, when, um, when there was the question of the, the Hitnat Quds, which was the Israeli withdrawal from Gaza, so there were a lot of rabbis, you know, had very strong opinions on whether we should or shouldn't pull out. And Rav Luchensi, my Rosh Shiva, was asked in a large article, a long article in the Idiot, so one of the major Israeli newspapers. And he said, listen, I, I'm not an expert on uh, this topic. If you want to make a decision, you, this, is, this is not a halachic question. You've got to go and, you know, ask the experts, ask the, the, uh, the the leaders of the army and the security forces and the like, and then you've got to come up with your own decision, but that the rabbi should dictate to his congregants on how to vote, I think that's an issue. That being said is, uh, I think that the pressure on us at the time was equal on both sides. 
I think there were very much pressure on us that this was a moral question of the day. And as rabbis, we were failing to stand up for the moral civil rights of, of the LGBT community. And I think that was that was something which I struggled with because I heard the argument there. But you know, the things with the with referendums, or at least when you've got yes or no answers, is often the, um, the answers to particular questions are a lot more complex than yes or no. Yeah, I don't think it's a flippant, flippant for, for me to say what I'm about to say. You know, at some point there'll be another referendum about the re Republic in Australia. Should we weigh in about whether there should be a Republic? Uh, I mean, you could say the Jews has views on monarchy. Uh, what they are is sort of more complicated. You know, to uh, the Abarabanel, when he, read, he reads the book of Samuel, thinks uh, monarchy is a very bad idea. Other people think that monarchy is supposed to be a good idea. And Jews thought so the Messiah will be a king. Uh, but Judas has got views on monarchy and, and republics and so on. So should we weigh into the, to the public debate, or do we say vote the way you believe will lead to a good outcome for Australia? Uh, and uh, and that's what we said about I said about you said about about the same-sex marriage referendum, and, and that's what I think you should say in all political matters. If it was something which which um, endangered Jewish rights, if there was a referendum to ban Shkita or ban uh, Bar, um, or, or ban um, religious, uh, the wearing of religious uh, garments. So uh, somebody came along and said, we want to get rid of all uh, uh, head and face coverings for Muslim women. And by the way, this will also include the kippah for Jewish men. Um, then we'd obviously tell our congregants to vote against such a, a measure because our, the civil rights of our community are, are, are directly threatened. But other than that, I think you tell people to vote, you know, according to what's good for Australia. And and it is a statement, of course, to say there is not a halakhic um, obligation to vote one way or the other. That itself is a halakhic statement. I, mean, I think it's the right halakhic statement. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I just want to uh, invite the uh, the audience to, uh, if there are questions, I'll just make sure that I've allowed you the... Um, now people can add to the chat. If you have any questions, you should... Uh, you should please uh, put them in the chat, and if we can, we will allow people to ask questions. Um, one question that has come through, and that is transgenderism. Mm. So that okay. is it. There you go. Ah, there we go. Transgenderism. <laughs> so it's come up on the chat as well. So do, do I'll let you I'll let you field it for, and I'll transgenderism go. Um, <laughs> uh, it's obviously a rising issue, an issue of increasing um, prominence, especially the past few years. Uh, quite considerably um and again there's very interesting work being done i i heard a uh, a suggestion made recently that that uh, women who transgender transition being to being men should be given aliot because uh, you heard it from me oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> it was a conversation earlier this week uh, so i'll tell you what you told me okay <laughs> which is that if if the reason that women don't generally receive an aliyah in orthodox schools is because of uh, this concept of of um, honor the dignity of the congregation, which is a very uncertain term, we don't know what it means. Well, um, once that transition has been made, people are living like a man, there should be no reason why that person should not receive an aliyah. That also have a lot of problems. Um, there are resources to draw upon uh, Rabbi Eliezer Waldenberg, who's uh, also the most uh, widely accepted on this issue, but he says, for example, that uh, the way one, one uh, appears um, anatomically is the way one is. We don't care about chromosomes. We don't care about uh, gametes. We care about the appearance of a person. And once the appearance has changed, 
um, that person is the gender that they've uh, they've uh, transitioned to. It gets more complicated when you move into areas of identity that somebody says, I now identify as a woman without any physical uh, surgery, without any hormonal treatment. That I think is a lot trickier. Uh, and to endorse when somebody says, I now identify as a woman, I now am a woman. Um, in halakhic terms, I think that's difficult. That doesn't mean that in, in the social terms, you don't behave that way. So somebody says, I now regard myself as a woman, then I think you obviously um, um, regard in all interactions, uh, regard them as a woman, speak to them as a woman, use female pronouns, um, you acknowledge it in every social and personal sense, whether you could um, define them halakhically as a woman without any surgery or other um, uh, treatment, physical treatment, is, uh, is I think much less certain. Uh, but actually, that, that the, the last point I make, you know, a lot of dealing with people who have transitioned in gender is about basically politeness, I think. And if people wish to be known as a particular gender or, or as gender fluent, um, if they tell you what pronouns that they want you to use, then you use those pronouns because that's just good manners, I think. Yeah, I think there's a, there's an element of mental thought, which we, we cannot forget that we cannot ever use Halakha is an excuse to not act like an age. That's right. And um, and dare I say that many do. Many do um, behave in uh, abominable ways and treat people inappropriately, whether they, and not even talking about this particular topic, but uh, Gentiles and the like, where people speak in a very discriminatory language. But people, Menshachat, you know, Derech Eret Kalmala Torah, that Menshachat preceded the Torah. That you, if you don't have uh, the late Rabtuski Zal has bought and Da'ela Mishpatim last week's parasha, so it says, Vayla Mishpatim, it says, why does it say, and these are the Mishpatim? It says, once you are a person, once you are a mensch, then these are the Mishpatim. Mm -hmm. So until such time as you're going to be able to treat people with their parents, Mishpatim, there's nothing to talk about. And so I agree wholeheartedly that if someone comes and self-identifies, it's not for me to question that perhaps they have an agenda. We should accept people for the way they present themselves. And, and that is, we, you know, in all areas of halacha, what you see is what you get. So if there's a, you don't have to go, if someone comes and says, this is the story, you accept it. You don't have to start, you know, saying, well, maybe they're lying to me. And, and, and that was always the old uh, canard with regards to women and with celebrities, which, by the way, seem like so tame by <laughs> comparison to issues which are, are cropping up more recently. Ah, oh, they just want to be like men. Ah, oh, they just want this. Oh, just, they just want that. Ah, oh, you know, are they coming to shul the rest of the year when there's no women sort of group? I always thought those were totally illegitimate and rather chutzpahdic questions. Like, who are you? Mm. <laughs> the question is, is this uh, acceptable? Uh, is this uh, is this viable, halakhically? Uh, and if it is, then um, then fabulous. Mm. And if it's not, it's not your obligation to work out a way in which it does comply with halakha. What the rabbi should never do is say, no, no, uh, the, the proposal you give me doesn't work. Uh, okay, go away. Mm. So, okay, this, this might be problematic. Um, how can we, how can we finesse it so it, it works? Yeah, I, I don't know. Like the the question of agenda, and and this this I suppose will go on any group with an agenda, um, is how do we determine? Am I going to be the arbiter about whether a person is sincere or they have an agenda, and who am I to make that judgment? I think I think that becomes very very dangerous, very difficult. I think here's another radical uh, statement. Uh, no one has an agenda. 
I think no one has an agenda because everyone can do whatever they want. And uh, yes, there might be one or two people who, for whatever reason, the way they were brought up and the chips they have on their shoulder, want to govern, come and give orthodoxy a, you know, a kick in the shins. There might be people like that, but I think, I think there are very many. People can choose. There are independent minyanim. People can just do their own thing in their own way. Um, if they're coming to us, it's actually because they have a love for what an orthodox shul in the orthodox community can provide. Not because they want to stick it to us, because they want to find a way to still be part of, of, of the orthodox community, um, uh, consistent with every other part of their identity. That's not an agenda, that's bringing them, themselves to the community. So, so I need to digest a little bit, because I'm not sure I agree with that. I do believe that there are agendas, and and I'm just not sure, I, I'm not sure I'm able to ascertain whether this is an agenda or not. So I, I would hold judgment on a particular case. I would hold my judgment and say, I don't know with this person's agenda. I think the agenda is when the, the goal isn't the objective. The goal is the the, the, the fight. And that it's more about the fight than it's about the outcome. But you know what they say? They say, you know, um, I'm not I'm not comfortable uh, comparing people, these people. Somebody said to me, I was on a spat with another academic, uh, as academics do in my, in my previous scholarly existence. And somebody said to me, don't fight with a pig because you'll both get dirty, you know, and the people enjoy it. <laughs> So if somebody comes to you for a fight, don't fight. You can you say with love, this is possible and this isn't possible. You, your mind doesn't go to the place of thinking about their agenda, because that's just get you into the fight. You just talk about um, what we can, you know, what's possible and what's possible that they haven't thought of yet. Um, but you have thought of and you can, and if they still say that's impossible, that's terrible, that's discriminatory, you say, it pains me that this is the way our encounter is, is, is concluded and come back when you when you, you want to discuss further. All right, so we have a number of questions here. I'm just going to go through some of them. Some of them are simple and some of them a little bit more complex. Okay, can a homosexual be, person be buried in a Jewish cemetery? Absolutely. I don't think there's anyone who says not. Um, the only, my only knowledge of any real histories uh, about questions of people being buried outside the cemetery with people who were consciously and deliberately um, against the community. It's people who, you know, just were not compliant with whatever communal stands are, would not be buried outside. You'd have to be something that was a deliberate decision made. But isn't it uh, fascinating that question was asked, that there's still a, a thought I think that's the, the case. I think that's the sad, scary reality is that so many people believe that if you have a tattoo, you can't get buried in Jewish cemetery. If a person, Rahman Hassan, takes their life, they can't be buried in a Jewish cemetery. A person who marries out of the faith can't be buried in a Jewish cemetery. So a lot of this does still exist. People still won't donate organs because they believe that they, you know, that it's against the the Torah to to donate organs. All of which, even if they are held, are held by very minority opinions. And nevertheless, somehow old habits die hard. And so there are these. It is it is sad that um, this is exists. But the fact that the question is asked is still okay. It's, I'm just going to try scroll to the top. Questions. Okay, I'm looking for questions. Not that. If a married gay couple come to shul, is an issue of who is the head of the household. I'm not sure why that would be relevant. Also, would both be accepting the minion? So absolutely. Uh, again, the definition of a minion is uh, male over bar mitzvah, and we do not ask any more questions than that. So again, just if perhaps you maybe came late, that if, if a person walks into shul and I don't know them, 
and they, for all intents and purposes, they look Jewish, meaning they have a kippah on their head, they, they sort of know what's going on. Not only will I count them in the minion, I offer them a layer to the Torah, I will not question any aspects of Rasta. So there, there was no difference whatsoever in this, this regard. Um, so if a homosexual couple were admitted as a couple family, wouldn't it, so to speak, permit living together be so? So, so the question is, um, would we not be conduct if we allowed family membership of a, of a same-sex couple? Would that not be a sure statement of we consider this a legitimate thing? Um, I, I think that is the grey area, which is is that really the issue here? So, Rabbi Elson, you, I mean, you talked about the fact that you've alleviated the issue by not having that family membership. I think the question from the sure point of view is, is that, you know, is it, you know, the shul is very clear, and this is something which I suppose is difficult, is that there's the administrative arm of the shul and there's the religious arm of the shul. So when it comes to paying fees, that, uh, that's the, the, bo the board, the president, that's their problem, it's not my problem. So if a person hasn't paid fees for months and months and months and months, and then the president comes to me and says, we cannot give this guy an alia because he hasn't paid his fees. So it says, listen, that's not my problem, my problem. Or that you can't do this guy's funeral because he's not a member of the shul. That, these are not my, I'm in the halach, I work for the Jewish people. <laughs> my current employer might be Kilat Masada, the great synagogue, but that's not who I work for. I work for Hashem and the Jewish people. So you've got money issues with them, take it with them. So membership is that interesting element is it is it on the rabbi side because the rabbi has to sign off in every membership i'm sure you as well you have to sign off every, you have to prove that the constitution and the like but it's really about fees so that's what it comes down to right like a person can come to show all the time without being a member but you know it's about are they going to pay dues so it is that gray area and so uh, you can get around it which is good but it, but it doesn't solve the, the question if uh, but i'm not sure a problem ready to answer um is a problem anymore in what sense so let's not deal with that question. Let's find a way not to deal with the question. Okay, I think that that is a wise, wise response. Uh, okay. Um, so I see a lot of us to say. So there is a question. I'd love to hear Leora's question. I don't know what Leora's question is. Uh, Leora has raised her hand. Okay. So. Leora's raised her hands. Let me find Leora and I will unmute her. Okay, Leora, I will unmute you and I will unpin myself before you speak just so that I can um, allow you to uh, un unmute yourself, Leora. Yeah, all good. Give me two seconds. I just want to unpin myself so I can unspotlight myself. Yeah, go for it. Speak away. Um, thank you for allowing me to speak, and also thank you for having this conversation. I think it's it's very a very difficult conversation for both modern Orthodox authorities and also people that are in the Orthodox community and in the LGBT community. Um, so it's good that we're having this conversation. Um, I picked up on I think you both kind of raised this idea of um, obviously there's halakhic issues, and I acknowledge where Orthodoxy can't move beyond them, but where there's communal issues and this idea of um, same-sex couples not being conducive with the Jewish experience and I've I also read in the chat basically I can't really it doesn't compute with me how my experience living with another orthodox woman that is Shomer Shabbos, Shomer Kashus were communally involved um, we're members of many different communities how is that not conducive with the Jewish experience 
I'm not sure. Do you, I don't recall the statement that I might have made, Rabbi Alton. Do you recall? Leora, maybe you could just. Um, I think. Uh, I think that's something you may have said. Something I may have said. So please, may, I, I don't recall what I said. So maybe you could just. Just. Uh, it, it was. It was kind of around the conversation about um, except, uh, kind of celebrating people's milestones and their uh, their wedding anniversaries and and is that something that you want to even if it's not there's no halachic problem is that a value that you want to bring into the Jewish community uh, is their marriage in line with the Jewish values that you're um, espousing in general? Okay, and the, and the and I was saying that it wasn't. Is that the is that how you understood it? Yeah, you kind of. You kind of use the, the idea of not really saying like this is we're celebrating the marriage of and and kind of not being sure about whether um, their lifestyle is in line with Jewish values and the Jewish like, experience. Like the marriage, but not that they got married. Okay, so all right, so I'm just gonna just gonna mute you again. So if I you can put your hand up again if you know. All right. So um, if I understand that correctly, um, I think I, I think I was sharing my my own personal difficulty and challenge in dealing with the topic because I do think they are you know orthodox you know they are um, re very real legitimate experiences by people whose lives are very different to my own and who am I to judge them the question is as a rabbi of an orthodox shul that has a certain tradition that has gone along with it at which point am I am I going to be able to bringing things that are not part of the normal traditional flow and be able to celebrate them in a way that is historically not been done what is going to be and i think rabbi elton spoke about it as well is you know we are part of a, a sure tradition we can't just come in and, and change up everything as we see it but that being said is we can't delegitimize the genuine experiences that people are having you know same-sex marriage i do not believe that a, that a same-sex marriage is, has any less love than a heterosexual marriage or that they're any less committed or they're any less devoted as parents. And I have nothing to suggest that. So who might to suggest that the quality of that marriage is any different to, to a heterosexual couple? But I struggle with it. And I think this is the, the point that we're making here. If we were two rabbis on the on the, on the right, this would be a very easy conversation. You know, the Torah says this, and black and white, and nothing to and if we we're on the left, you'd be able to say, you know, everything, everybody's equal, no difference. It's the fact that we try to position ourselves in the middle, which means that we struggle consistently with it because we see legitimate Judaism, authentic Judaism, you know, it's not legitimate, authentic Judaism being practiced by people who are different. And we, we don't know where, how we deal with it. And we struggle with it. I struggle, I don't speak whatever, I struggle with it because I do see it. So I'm just bringing you into my struggle rather than uh, trying to actually make a value statement. So I hope that answers your call, your, um, I, just I guess, to... oh, yeah. I, I guess, kind of what what I'm struggling with is is you're saying that they're so that it's hard to accept these people's lives that are so different. But what I'm saying is they're not so different, and it's not about their love being the same. It's literally like we light Shabbos candles, you light Shabbos candles. We bench after Shabbos dinner, you bench after like there's no kind of difference that I'm seeing in our lifestyle that means that yeah. we're not conducive with this experience that you're trying to share with your community. I agree. I, I, yes, and I think that's why um, everybody in a community who's, who's living in that way and is espousing those values, you know, should be given, you know, uh, uh, recognition and role and prominence and so on. And, and so on and so forth. I think 
the, the problem that all three of us in this bit of the conversation probably share is like Robert Krebs and I, for example, wouldn't perform a same sex marriage. And ultimately, we've got to account for why that's, that's the case. Uh, there are some Orthodox rabbis in the world, very few, who would do so. This isn't a problem for them. But for those of us who wouldn't perform a same sex marriage, if we're going to be totally honest, we have to account for that. So the way a couple lives once they are married and once in a relationship, may fully uphold the values of Orthodox Judaism, but the, 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 the fact of the marriage itself, the, that, that actual event, that, that, um, that um, uh, uh, formal um, coming together, um, is something we wouldn't perform. Um, there must be something which we don't regard as, as um, uh, something we can do as, as Orthodox rabbis. I think that's what we're talking about, essentially. Does that make sense to you, Biora? Yeah, so I understand where there's halachic barriers, but where there's communal barriers, I'm a bit less sympathetic because I feel like they can easily, uh, with a bit of work, they should be much more flexible. Yes, and I think, you know, when, when there's a fait accompli of a couple who are in a loving relationship, bringing up a family and a contributing to the community, then, then both of us put the, the formality of that, of that sort of contract aside and we just talk talk about people and families and relationships. Yeah. All right. Um, sorry, All right. So um, just looking if there are any other questions along here. Um, okay. Don't see any other questions. Um, so to that end, Ravelton, uh, I. Um, I suppose just for the for the sake of transparency, um, when Rabbi Elton and myself were talking beforehand, I said I'm not sure this is the wisest conversation to have, because do we as Orthodox rabbis stand to gain anything? We stand to lose a lot, because those on our right will use it as an example for bashing us, and then those on our left will say how intolerant we are because we do have uh, points of uh, that we can't cross. But that being said, I I think as people who sit in the middle, it's incumbent upon us not only to, to tackle these issues in a mature way, in a dignified way, but to find forums to have it in a public discussion. To the best of my knowledge, this is a conversation that has happened in closed rooms, maybe with small audiences, but never in such a public manner. And so that is scary. And recorded, no. And, and recorded for prosperity. So it's, um, it, is, it is difficult, and, and, I, and I have been in it you know, nervous with a lot of the conversations we'll be having over the next few weeks, but I think a, a crucially important subject. And there's if, a, there's if a, one if one person now feels more comfortable coming to our shuls and feels more welcome and accepted and embraced within our communities, then I think the entire exercise is worthwhile, even if we cop it. Yes, I think as orthodox rabbis, as conscientious people, we have to put ourselves out there and have honest, difficult conversations. and be open to rebuke um, sometimes and um, from whatever angle. Um, I've been wondering as we've been going on who exactly is watching and will be watching this recording and what uh, feedback I might get from different sources. We'll see what happens in the next few days. But I, I'll, I'll uh, tell you a nice story. Um, uh, Rabbi Jakovovitz, who's rather conservative on this issue actually, uh, he told a story that um, he was asked once to write an article for the Times on, uh, on this issue. And he thought to himself, Oi, I don't need this in my life. You can't win. So he said to the journalist who called him up, he said, look, I'm not really an expert 
in this topic. But I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll go away and I'll read the Encyclopedia Judaica article on the issue. And if I feel there's something I pick up from there, then I'll get back to you. And he read the whole article, and up to the author at the bottom, it said, Emmanuel Jacobovitz. <laughs> so sometimes we can protest too much. Okay, so the uh, someone made a comment that this conversation has happened at Limous around the world and public skills and on the record. Uh, to that, I have no doubt. I didn't say that this conversation has never happened, I just said it hasn't happened here. Yeah. Sydney, in many ways, a lot of the public conversations that the Orthodox world should be having have not happened yet. And uh, we are all um, trying to make sure that these things do happen. And also, it's a different conversation than it was a year ago or five years ago. It's a different conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So to that end, uh, Rabbi Alton, thank you so much for hosting me here at the Great Synagogue. Thank, thank you for coming. Privilege for coming to the city in the middle on a Sunday evening. I haven't done that in a while. Um, thank you so much, everybody, for joining us. It's been a great crowd this evening. Uh, we'd love to hear your feedback. This will be on uh, upload onto YouTube and Facebook. And just have a Shavuot Tov, uh, a good week, and uh, everyone should stay safe. And please God, next time, next next uh, Sunday, all the best, Laila Tov.